I appreciate Shay and Sean joining me on the stage today to talk about something that I don't think is, I don't want to say overlooked, but it's definitely a, a component that you don't think about, uh, is that space, it's easier to operate in when you have allies. As, uh, the, as Colonel Atkinson said beforehand, you know, it's the only worst thing than fighting your allies is fighting without them, not necessarily fighting, but operating. So I wanted to start with a quote. Um, with, from a gentleman who's a colleague of both of yours, actually, because uh, believe it or not, there are a lot of Royal Air Force members who are actually in the Space Force, whether you know it or not. This is from uh, Group Captain Darren Whiteley, who is Deputy Director of Global Partnerships for the U.S. Space Force. Allied partnerships are critical to defending our assets at home and in the space domain. The threat is expanding, and international collaboration is essential to strengthen deterrence against hostile actors. Through these partnerships, we are able to expand the depth and multiply the effects we can have to those evolving threats. So hopefully without upstaging you or stealing any of your answers, I wanted to start out in a little profound way and ask you, you know, what does an allied partnership in a space mission mean to you? And Shay, we can start with you and also just fill in a little bit about your role and your office's role in fulfilling our allied partnerships. Yeah, well, I tell you, we'll go ahead and uh, kick it off by addressing your question, but I also want to uh, say thank you first and foremost for the invitation from FCA Nova to be here. Uh, good afternoon to everybody, and, and certainly uh, my guest partner here, uh, Wing Commander Langers. Uh, pleasure to be with you on the stage as well, and thanks, Eric, uh, for hosting this. Uh, so I will tell you, earlier today, uh, the CSO's uh, line of effort number three was evoked, if I recall, earlier this morning with regard to uh, partnering to win. In particular, and some of the language straight out of that basically says that space power uh, is a collaborative endeavor, um, and it requires very robust partnerships across the board. And when you look at uh, what we do in, with our, our allies and our coalition partners, they're an absolute force multiplier for us uh, from a deterrent nature uh, to be able to execute all of our space operations missions and certainly to provide that competitive advantage across the board not only for the U.S., but certainly it's a win-win relationship for those nations as well. Uh, you know, when you look at space operations and our, our access to uh, the space domain, being able uh, to operate to, from, and within that domain, uh, it's, it's absolutely vital, critical to what we do. Uh, you know, our, our global security depends on it. Our economic prosperity across the board, whether folks really realize that or not, uh, in the physics of that domain... Uh, are different from any other that we operate in. And because of that, uh, we're, on, we're on an absolute campaign across the board uh, to talk with our allies and coalition partners to ensure that there is a broader understanding of that specific domain. Sean, are we fulfilling the reputation of the special relationship between our two governments? Uh, when it comes to space operations, what is your role and what have you seen throughout the years? Eric, I would say very much so, yes. Uh, I am on the air staff in the British Embassy. Um, but what that really means is I try and keep my air and space attaché, who's a one-star, but he's a fighter jet pilot. A little bit more knowledgeable on space matters. Uh, Colonel Shea's done a fabulous job of answering that first question. Um, but what I would add to that is that it's just kind of obvious that it makes sense. All right? Space is inherently a global domain. And if you look at all the traditional warfighting domains of land, sea, and air, we've operated as a coalition for decades, and it just makes sense that we should do the same in the space domain. Now, the previous speaker, I noted he stole a, a Churchill quote, which I thought as the Brit I'd have the monopoly on. <laughs> but I'll, I'll draw your attention to the first part of that. And that Churchill makes the point that it's not easy fighting with allies, right? He says there's only one thing worse than fighting with them. 
And so it's not straightforward. There are differences that need to be overcome. There are obstacles, but I think it's incumbent upon people like us to make sure that wherever possible, we're reducing those barriers to ever closer collaboration. All right, well, let's, we have a little bit of a visual aid to describe how these operations are carried out, if we could get that slide put up there for us. All right, as you can see, and I promised I would make the punny joke of this will be our North Star for our conversation, because as you can see, this has been laid out by Colonel Shea very uh, diligently, and he wanted me to stress that this is a working uh, uh, description of how things are operating. So what I wanted to go off with first in that left, top left-hand corner are the international sharing agreements. Uh, Sean, can you just start out by describing, you know, what are these sharing agreements, how do they work, um, you know, and what is the demand for them in shaping them? Well, I'll answer the last part first, and the demand is huge, and you can see by the sheer number of countries with which the U.S. has data sharing agreements. But I'll be pleased to note there are many union flags on there. And while some of them are specific to the UK, there are some that are embedded with other nations' flags as well. So that always is nice to see. Um, I can speak specifically to the UK, which derives the vast majority of its space surveillance and tracking data from the US, and particularly the 18th Space Defence Squadron. And we use, that, we use that to do our own orbit determination, the UK Space Operations Centre, and to be able to maintain a degree of sovereign space situational awareness. But a point I would make is that a lot of those agreements you're seeing in the top left are for unclassified space surveillance and tracking data, a lot of which is available through the, uh, the spacetrack.org website. But that's only part of the puzzle, if you like. That is a foundational layer upon which, if you're going to really get to space domain awareness, and I think we absolutely need to, given the, the, the nature of the domain these days with, with activities that we've seen by Russia and China, then there's a whole other bit which needs to be layered on top of that, and that really is the intelligence part. And here is for the first time where I'll come to a little bit more about the obstacles in ever closer collaboration, because a lot of the space intelligence is derived from very sensitive and very exquisite sources, and it's not necessarily straightforward for the US Space Force or indeed US Space Command to share that high level of intelligence with its allies and partners. Shay, you sound sounds like you have a bit of a, a happy partner here, but sounds like he wants to explore it a little bit more. But what does the sharing agreement mean to you, and, and what is the stance of the Space Force on that? Yeah, so context is very important, and Sean did a great job of, of kind of walking through that piece as well. Uh, so today we have uh, these service support agreements with over 30 nations in particular. Really, it's kind of a bilateral agreement. Uh, between the U.S. that's uh, done through U.S. Spacecom, uh, I would add, through the J55, for those of you who were here earlier um, and you heard that discussion uh, right after lunch. And so these agreements in particular, you know, again, there's a basic service level where anybody can go out, spacetrack.org, and sign up. There are over 150,000 user accounts out there. The standard uh, data that's provided are, are two-line elements uh, and that sort of thing. But these space, uh, these agreements get at really the heart of some of the, the more critical aspects of what you would see on orbit in terms of conjunction assessments, uh, the collision avoidance, electromagnetic interference, far more than the two-line uh, set reentry, deorbiting disposals of satellites across the board. And so, um, you know, nations use these agreements to varying degrees, uh, obviously, with uh, for whatever shared interest they have from that standpoint. But this is, this is no kidding, the inject point uh, via U.S. Spacecom for those type of agreements with, for these bilateral uh, sides. 
If I could add on to that, please, please. Eric. Um, these data sharing agreements, some of them have been around for a very long time. And we should bear in mind that although we're seeking ever closer collaboration with the US and our Five Eyes partners in particular, where, where the space domain is concerned, it's not a new thing. And the UK has, since 1963, had a US-provided space surveillance radar in northern Yorkshire. Uh, whilst it does contribute significantly to ballistic missile early warning, it spends most of its time contributing to space surveillance and tracking for low-Earth orbit satellites. And so this is not a new thing. I think there is now a tipping point in the domain where we need to work more closely than we ever have. So you can hear him clamoring for that. And, you know, let's keep bringing it back to the Churchill quote. Uh, you know, there are some of those differences between allies that need to be overcome. Shay, how do you dictate, you know, what's good information and what's, you know, okay, we'll help you out, but we're going to keep this to ourselves a little bit. There. <laughs> yeah, so I, I will tell you at the very highest levels, there is a push. Uh, to be able to declassify, to go to at least real 5i uh, type of classifications across the board, to get away from no foreign uh, whenever possible. And so uh, within the Space Force in particular, uh, I can tell you at Space Operations Command, they're looking at it by mission set in particular. And so it is easier in some cases, if you're looking at MILSATCOM, position, navigation, timing, or nav warfare, those are a little bit easier to get after in terms of the declassification of bringing those to rel 5 i certainly than arguably nuclear command and control and some of the other mission sets uh, that we get after. But right now they are, in fact, the staffs are looking at how to get after that in particular. And I think uh, sometime this spring, early summer uh, is when they're looking to have uh, kind of across the board uh, the processes in place to be able to get after that. Sean, are you satisfied, or is, it, is the overclassification issue that has been talked about in other agencies uh, is it, you know is it causing any roadblocks you know that might hamper operations in the future that we that you want to operate with uh, within the U.S. government? We are seeing real progress being made, and at the very highest levels of the DoD, we are seeing and aware of memos that are being written as directives to the force. We just have to accept that it takes time, and in many instances, what needs to happen is a culture chain, change, but that takes time to inculcate. And so we need to be patient, but we also need to be, if you like, holding the U.S. to account that they are meeting the intent of the senior leaders based on what they are saying. Absolutely. All right. And so let's get into some of those specific examples of combined space operations. Um, let's talk Operation Olympic Defender. That is a big project that both governments are very excited about. Um, Shay, why don't we start with you on trying to outline it for us and what your role in that is. Yeah, sure. So Operation Olympic Defender is a U.S. Spacecom named operation. Uh, in, in fact, what we're working very closely right now with the U.K., Australia, uh, and Canada on uh, about four months ago, we walked through the mission analysis where we have shared capabilities um, and to be able to plan uh, moving forward in terms of a multinational force operation. And so uh, as of May, we'll be getting to, into the course of action analysis in terms of uh, what each of the nations is able to bring to bear uh, from a capability capacity standpoint to be able to get after some of that. But this is all very much on the heels of some of the efforts that were mentioned earlier. Uh, Global Sentinel, for example, uh, coming, coming out of the J55 office there at U.S. Spacecom. Uh, Sean, I don't know if you wanted to. Um, 
the only bit I'd add is that the UK was the first nation to join Operation Olympic Defender in 2019. And we shouldn't lose fact of how significant that is. The US now has a named operation, and it's an enduring operation, for combined space activities. And that in itself is a massive step forward from where we were. And I think it points to the fact that the US working now more closely with allies and partners in the space domain has become non-discretionary. And that is largely due to the actions that we're seeing China in particular, but also Russia taking in making the domain a contested one. Yeah, on the mixing of operations, we also are mixing personnel now. Uh, there's several members of the Royal Air Force who are serving in the U.S. Space Force. Uh, and, you know, Sean, I would be curious to know how that transition has worked for your former colleagues, and I guess still colleagues, but countrymen. <laughs> Yeah, it's a significant growth we've seen. I'm an example of an officer who served on exchange in what was headquarters Air Force Space Command before that really became the colonel around which uh, US Space Force developed. Uh, and so I have a grounding in, in national security space through a US lens, and that's been invaluable to me in my career. But in the time that I've been in the embassy, which has only been two and a half years, you know, we've more than doubled the number of people we have serving in exchange and liaison roles. And that's across the breadth of US Space Force and US Space Command. Uh, ranks from 06 down to E4. Uh, and the insights we gain and the knowledge, skills and experience we, we are able to inculcate into our personnel who can then bring that back to the UK and grow our human capital for space is, frankly, that is invaluable. Uh, and I'll just add to that, that although the UK is sig investing significant additional funding into its military space endeavours, it is still very modest in comparison with the US Space Force, which we know the President's budget request was something like $30 billion uh, for FY24. The UK is never going to be able to match that, but what we can do is put good people into some key roles within US organizations uh, and really contribute to the burden sharing that the UK seeks to be able to contribute as a burden sharing nation and a meaningful space actor. Shay, what do we get out of this? <laughs> uh, it, fantastic relationships. I tell you what, um, we have the connective tissue uh, to be able to reach across the pond. As you see there, if I could direct your attention to the middle of the slide, we work very closely uh, with the space operations uh, centers there in the UK and Australia and Canada. In fact, every week we have an operations and intel briefing uh, with each of those nations where they're, they're part of that. We talk through the, the space support request, any of the requests for information that they have across the board, which harken back to those SSA sharing agreements as well. But that's our, that is our conduit on a weekly basis, and it, it's, it's daily in many cases, don't, don't get me wrong. But at a minimum, we're talking weekly from that standpoint. Uh, you know, as mentioned before, those four operation centers that, uh, that kind of bring back under the fold uh, for SIFS that combine for Space Component Command. In particular, the Missile Warning Center, uh, due to our, our relationships with NORAD and NORTHCOM, certainly from that missile warning standpoint, we have Canadians embedded with us uh, in those centers that are looking at the integrated tactical warning attack assessment side of the house. Uh, when you look at uh, GENWIC, the, the Joint Navigational Warfare Center out at Kirtland, and what we're doing from a nav war standpoint, uh, we've got uh, an Australian officer on board there. And then I tell you, our, in our very own, we're co-located at Vandenberg. SIFSIC uh, is the staff uh, with the CSPOC. Uh, we're very fortunate to have that, the, the Combined Space Operations Center, which serves as the, the lifeblood. It is the absolute nerve center uh, for space command and control operations across the board. Uh, our deputy director of the CSPOC is an Australian group, uh, 
uh, Group Captain Greening. And um, prior to that, it was a UK officer, and I suspect uh, one of those uh, nations there in the middle uh, will be uh, the follow-on deputy director here in another year and a half or so. Uh, I would also add, you can see, we work very closely with uh, Germany, Japan, and France uh, from that standpoint with their burgeoning uh, operation centers. And uh, I, I can't uh, forget to add NATO uh, from the standpoint of the Space Center. Uh, you know, NATO in particular recognized space as an operational domain in 2019. And in 2020, began to, to establish their uh, Space Center at Ramstein Air Base under Allied Air Command. And so right now, we're working very much hand-in-glove with them uh, from the standpoint of uh, looking at all the operations uh, they would like to do and to be able to work very closely from that standpoint. So again, burgeoning relationships across the board uh, obviously uh, work very tightly right now with the UK, Canada, and Australia on those fronts. Derek, if I could just Please. build off of that, um, you know, I talked about the fact that I'd been able to work in a US space organization for three years as an exchange officer. And immediately after that, went from Colorado to RF High Wycombe, where the UK Space Operations Center is. And that's at the, the very 12 o'clock position in the center of the slide there. And as officer commanding of the UK Space Operations Center, I remember very clearly in 2019 having live VTCs ongoing whilst we were preparing for a Russian direct ascent anti-satellite weapon launch. And it was thanks to the information we were getting in real time from the Combined Space Operations Center that we were able to provide a response and keep our senior leadership informed of how that situation was developing. And that, for me, is a very <coughs> neat vignette that just sums up the already close relationship that we have and, and the importance of it. Yeah, what, uh, Eric, oh, if I could please. just add real quick. Absolutely. Because I want to differentiate as well. So those exchange officers that you see there, uh, well, let me talk about the LNOs first. They're represented by France, Germany, uh, the UK, and Japan. The, the LNOs themselves are direct representatives to those nations. And, of course, we have collaboration and we integrate them where we can. Uh, but they have a very different relationship with their nations than the exchange officers. Those exchange officers are embedded within the units. And they, for all intents and purposes, are working on uh, U.S.-led efforts uh, across the board. Again, they have that conduit back uh, to their own operations centers. But they're, they are working for multiple years embedded within those units. I'm just curious, and I don't want you to speak for any other branch's experience or anything like that, but is this kind of collaboration unique when it comes to military operations? I know space is obviously its whole different domain, but you know, just having somebody working side by side, as you said, almost on a weekly basis, uh, you know, from talking to your uh, fellow military colleagues, is that something that is unique to this domain? Uh, no, I don't think so at all. In fact, uh, we, we look to leverage uh, these type of relationships wherever possible. Uh, of course, I have a space ops background, but I also have a cyber background as well. And from a U.S. Cybercom standpoint, their J-5 works very closely uh, with uh, international partners, too. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'd like to open up the Slido here. If any of you have any questions for these two gentlemen, please go ahead and get them in there. And it looks like you might already. So why don't we just start it off there? Sharing government managed resources and data across allies is challenging. Is sharing commercial resources and data across allies part of the strategic plan? Shay, I'll let you start that one as well. Sure. I think, you know, from a managed resource standpoint, really the data is key, and that's already been kind of mentioned uh, earlier today in previous sessions. Uh, I will tell you the infrastructure that we have today, BICE, Centrix J, uh, MPE, uh, they're, they're decent systems, 
but what we need to be doing in terms of the TSSCI rel 5i front, there's a lot more work that needs to be done across the board. Uh, you know, BICES in particular, it's wonderful for a, a secure VTC, but when you want to go much further than that, uh, it has some limitations. And I'll build off that and say, yes, it is challenging, but technically entirely feasible. Right? So what we're talking about, the impediments really are policies and authorities to allow that information exchange to happen. Um, the commercial resources point's a really interesting one. And the UK, the Ministry of Defence, is working to later this year stand up something called a, it's, it's quite a clunky acronym, JCO is, is what it goes by, but that stands for the Joint Task Force Space Defence Commercial Operations Endeavour. And that really is providing um, additional capacity to leverage space domain awareness information from commercial, often SATCOM providers. Because so much of the, particularly the SATCOM bandwidth is provided through commercial uh, service providers, um, they've got a lot of assets on orbit for which they derive significant amounts of space domain awareness that can augment those purely military sources of intelligence as well. And so this is another avenue where the UK is, is seeking to provide greater input and contribution to that US-led effort to get ever better, um, more relevant space domain awareness. And that's a, that's a great point that Sean made. And I would like to go back to a previous lesson or a session earlier today where they talked about the JCO out of JTFSD. For those of you who aren't aware, U.S. Spacecom has two functional commands. JTFSD, Joint Task Force Space Defense, works uh, the protect and defend of on-orbit assets. And so that is where that JCO resides from the commercial standpoint. Uh, on the previous slide that we had up in the bottom left corner, you probably saw 10 of our... Oh, it's still up. It's still oh, up. They can you, 10 of our commercial partners there. At CSPOC, we have a commercial integration cell, too. Uh, that's all going to get rolled up again at U.S. Spacecom under the, the commercial integration office. Uh, but right now, that CIC, that commercial integration cell, uh, we have representative on the floor that basically looks after the interest of all 10 of those companies uh, in, in real time, uh, is able to uh, work back and forth with, the, with them. Uh, we work very closely in terms of uh, EMI, again, electromagnetic interference, whole host of things that we might be experiencing, whether it be in the AOR, over CONUS, or otherwise. And so those are just fantastic relationships that we have established that are only going to continue to bear fruit. I'll just quickly build on that and say what we've seen in Ukraine with Russia targeting Starlink. You know, these, these commercial SATCOM providers you know, become targets themselves. Now, that's a whole separate debate on whether that's a legitimate military target or not. But nonetheless, I think those adversary nations will seek to target commercial providers because they know how important they are to the whole. Yeah, I mean, we can keep piggybacking off of Colonel Atkinson when he mentioned uh, the industry partners are almost part of the force. Uh, Shay, what is, how are those relationships formed and, you know, wh where, are, you know where does that come from uh, in this, once again, in the specialty of the U.S. space domain? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, of course it harkens back to these commercial leases that we have, whether it be for MILSATCOM or imagery or other aspects, uh, certainly. And again, that inject point is through U.S. Space Command um, from that standpoint. But we work very closely. Uh, you see the 10 companies there from a commercial standpoint. There are other companies that will be brought into the fold soon, uh, but all of that is vetted through the combatant command uh, in terms of uh, the interest 
you know, where, where they see it being a win-win relationship across the board. And so why you wanted me to emphasize once again, this is an ever-changing slide, so yes. please don't, don't take this as uh, religion or anything. But, Shay, you know, working with across industry and the U.S. Space Force, uh, you know, what are your relationships with uh, industry uh, in the commercial space realm? Is that for me? Yes, sorry. sorry. Uh, Shay and Sean, we knew it was going to happen at least once. It's, uh, <laughs> it's something that we are starting to try and get our arms around. Um, we should acknowledge that UK Space Command is, is only a couple of years old. Uh, and so we are still nascent in this journey. But I, th I think there's, there's no mistake in the fact there is there's clear understanding that we really need to seek to leverage the agility that commercial providers have. The innovation is something which I don't think government can ever match. And so it's all about having that right um, type of engagement with industry where those really good ideas um, are able to be exploited and taken and brought to operational capability and relevant timeframes. And that's, I think, where perhaps the DOD, but also the Ministry of Defence struggles. And it's not just in the space domain. You could, you could look across domains when it comes to acquisition and all the problems therein. We can start from an issue-based question that I have, and that is the problem of orbital debris, which is something that affects everybody, including up on that board and countries that aren't up on that board. Uh, Shay, can you tell me a little bit about how collaborating with other governments and other <clears throat> industry partners uh, is looking to tackle that problem? Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, Sean already mentioned the 18th Space Defense Squadron uh, based out of Vandenberg, and that is the heart and soul uh, of space domain awareness. Uh, from the track, I can tell you that today we're, we're approaching nearly 48,000 uh, objects, either uh, payloads on orbit or, or debris, uh, that we're tracking about 10 centimeters in size uh, and larger. And so um, it's, it's a significant issue uh, across the board. And, uh, you know, I think one of the, one of the questions there is uh, that we're probably going to dovetail into is with regard to the Department of Commerce. Uh, and the fact they're taking on the civil space traffic management piece. Um, you know, and I know that from a Space Force standpoint, what we're looking for is interoperability there, uh, certainly, as we look for the unified data library to make sure that anything that we're collecting is, is passed on uh, to the Department of Commerce. But when you look at uh, some of the companies uh, out there that are, that are uh, obviously launching the mega constellations, uh, this is becoming one of the – it just requires more eyes, more sensors – uh, across the board to be able to get after that. You know, I'm going to ask, how does orbital debris affect UK space interests? Um, as Colonel Shea said, a significant problem that's getting significantly worse. Um, and the sheer resource you need to put in to be able to maintain custody of circa 40,000 objects, and that's rapidly growing, means that it's, it's hard to, to reach a point where you've got enough sensors <coughs> to be able to do that job to, to a high enough degree of fidelity. And somewhere where the UK, I think, can add additional um, capability, perhaps, to, to the DOD is the fact that the UK, yes, it's obviously got its homeland in the North Atlantic, but the UK has overseas territories around the world. And there are areas, perhaps, where the US may wish to put space domain awareness sensors to just further grow the sensor coverage we have of low Earth orbit in particular. 
And please do get those questions in, whatever, and upvote the ones that you really want to see. Uh, we can start up at the top of what support and innovation is needed now and over the next few years to facilitate information sharing across coalition partners at the speed of relevance. Why don't we start with uh, you, Sean? <laughs> seems I feel like yeah. I've banged the drum a, f a few times yeah. already. <laughs> uh, but as far as innovating, you know, what, what sort of innovations? You've talked about how poli you know, these are just policies and policies can change, but are there technical capabilities <clears throat> that could make you know, information sharing feel a little bit better for the person dealing out the information? The limitations are not technical. The limitations are policies, authorities, and frankly, an appetite for risk. And... To, to restate what I did earlier, you know, I think there's an imperative now to share that perhaps didn't exist five or ten years ago. So it is becoming non-discretionary, and I think there needs to be a little bit more of risk acceptance, risk tolerance in sharing, because I think were we to have to go to war tomorrow in any domain, I think there would then be an imperative to share, which if we did that earlier, we'd just be in a much better position to perhaps deter, but, but if deterrence failed, then be in a posi better position to respond as a coalition. You know, I think right now we'd have a coalition where the whole was less than the sum of its parts, whereas if we managed to crack that nut, then I think we'd, we'd have a coalition that was greater than the sum of its parts. Shay, it looks like this next question might be geared towards you. What trends are you seeing from the partner international ops centers, Australia, UK, Japan, Germany, and France, and what challenges are they seeing, you know, besides, obviously, some of the information sharing stuff that we've already discussed? <laughs> yes, yeah, so the trends in general are certainly uh, space support requests uh, across the board. Whether, you know, we're looking at uh, OPIR watch boxes, um, uh, GPS jamming for EMI, those sorts of things, uh, wherever we can ap apply... Uh, those capabilities to be able to support whether it's operations that they're conducting uh, as well. Um, those are really the types of things that, that we're seeing. They, of course, again, we talked about orbital debris already. And so from the standpoint of conjunction assessments, collision avoidance, that is a significant thing. And I can tell you uh, the 18th Space Defense Squadron working through the CSPOC works very closely uh, with those operation centers from that standpoint, whether they be commercial um, or uh, nation-owned satellites. Uh, that, that's really where we're seeing a lot of the impetus. There's significant mission analysis right now. There's significant training uh, that's going on, ops exchanges across the board, uh, working very closely with the teams from that standpoint. All right, and not to ignore the upper right-hand corner of the slide of you know, interagency partnerships, I just didn't want to uh, keep on harping on it since that was <laughs> kind of the topic of the panel before, but. I think we should discuss a little bit into that because obviously, you know, our space agency probably has some some say in our international partnerships. Uh, what can you tell me about their role and, you know, that of also the Defense Department and you already mentioned the Commerce Department, but what other a U.S. agencies are getting in on this? Well, I, I'll tell you, I won't speak on behalf of other agencies, but uh, for the three in particular in the corner, you know, for uh, JOPSI, the Joint uh, OPIR um, Center, in particular, they work hand in glove with uh, the NGA. The NGA, it's about half and half NGA, and so we work very, very closely with that unit. Department of Commerce, we've mentioned from a civil uh, space traffic management side of the house, and then for NASA, uh, absolutely critical relationship that we have there. I'll tell you, we work very closely with First Air Force from a human space flight standpoint, and so whether you're looking at uh, you know Crew Dragon missions. 
that are coming and going, whether you're looking at the ISS in particular, we work very, very closely with NASA from the standpoint of the need for them. Uh, they may do you know, predetermined uh, debris avoidance maneuvers or PDAMs uh, of the ISS depending on the proximity of orbital debris. And I, I think many of you are probably tracking that that has happened twice uh, in March. And so, uh, you know, it, it's one of those issues that continues um, that we have to follow very closely, but work, work again with, uh, with NASA. Sean, as an allied partner, navigating, you know, through the federal government can be tough even for citizens. What, what say you? <laughs> it can be tough. Um, we'll take UK Space Command, which is a headquarters of less than 100 people, and it's facing off against... U.S. Space Force, a four-star command, of course, doing organized training and equipment, and then another four-star organization, U.S. Space Command, doing global space operations. So trying to, to cover off all of those equities, it is a challenge. And you know, all governments, I think, are, are bureaucratic institutions. But my goodness, the U.S. has taken it to, to another level. Um, so that does keep it interesting for us, uh, particularly from an embassy perspective. Um, but just on civil-military collaboration or, or interagency, you know, in the UK's defence space strategy, the first one we've ever had published last year, we have committed to building a, a national space operations centre. Uh, that is still very much uh, an endeavour that's in its infancy. But we see civil uh, and, and military space, and indeed commercial space, because we already have a commercial integration cell within our UK space operations centre, that it just makes sense to do that, right? Space is a... Is a I think somewhat unique in that respect. It does require almost a whole of government um, and often whole of military response, of course, because we're not just talking about uh, the likes of Space Force as a provider of capability, but it's the users as well. And we had the, uh, the Army speaker on early who articulated that very eloquently. Great transition for me to ask you. Can you just educate us a little bit on the UK government's space collaborations between you know, space agencies and military affairs? Is it married as much as it is for the U.S. government, or are there strict highways that they stay within? Um, probably more on the latter. Um, speaking of debris removal, actually, just reminded me that the U.K. Space Agency is right now looking at some active debris removal missions in years to come. Um, but I think there is an acknowledgement, particularly when we're talking about um, the U.K. developing a launch capability. Now, I won't say sovereign launch because it's not really uh, a U.K. government endeavour, but that they are providing funding towards it. But there are commercial launch providers looking to develop uh, vertical and horizontal space ports within the UK. Uh, and that requires a really close <coughs> collaboration between the Ministry of Defence, um, but also the civil and commercial space sectors to bring all that together and be able to do it safely. And, you know, adding on top of that, you, 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 know, you bring in these collaborations with the US government and other governments across the world. Uh, it, you know, once again, I'll ask you maybe to do a, just a quick comparison of how those relationships go with industry and, you know, I guess if you want to go bring in another agency or two, why, why wouldn't you copy us? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, we're just talking difference of scale, really, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the UK has got a very vibrant space industry, of course, um, but those partnerships are not nearly as mature as the ones which DOD has with industry. Uh, in time, I think the, those relationships, there'll be fewer of them, but hopefully they'll be just as, um, as robust and well-formed. But right now, this is still very much in its infancy as the UK Ministry of Defence, at least, decides where it wants to go with its investments in the additional £1.4 billion of money that was um, confirmed through the integrated review of 2021. <clears throat> 
All right, and Shay, what other, and I know we're getting close to time here, but I just am curious, what other uh, issues pertaining to space that can be military or non-military do you think that allied partnerships uh, that, you, that the U.S. Space Force has is ripe for tackling? You know, what other issues are there that, that can, help, can be mitigated with these partnerships? Well, I mean, it's very important to understand that in terms of uh, capacity, capability, and certainly resilience across the board, that is what our allied partners are, are bringing to the table um, in support of what we're doing as well. And, you know, and we reciprocate in kind, obviously, from that standpoint. I think one of the most important things we can do, and I, and I think Sean may agree with me here, is, is really the security classification guidance moving forward. Uh, when we can break some of those barriers, we obviously uh, have, you know, shared trust and, and mutual interest, uh, and, and it takes all of our allies. It, it takes like-minded um, nations to be able to have responsible norms of behavior in the space domain. And so really opening the aperture for our allies from that standpoint is one of the biggest things we can do, particularly in the near term. Sean, one of General Saltzman's three lines of efforts, partner to win. Uh, obviously, this is a big push for the U.S. Space Force. Um, and You've mentioned some of the issues, but where are you feeling the love and, and, and think that it's, it's actually improving uh, operations as a whole? Are we feeling the love? <laughs> I, I would say very much so, actually. <laughs> uh, we have got very good relationships at senior levels with U.S. Space Command, uh, with U.S. Space Force. Um, but I, I sense now that we're at a point in history where... It's obvious that we need to work more closely in the domain. I think the U.S. realizes that. And it is making concerted efforts to bring its closest partners and allies more into the fold to allow us to work more closely together. So the intent is there. But as I said in, in my earlier remarks, you know, there is an amount of time that needs to pass for things like security classification guides to be updated. And that sounds already boring and really tactical. But without that sort of stuff, the rubber doesn't meet the road in terms of memos or, or intelligence update briefs being shared amongst those who, who need and should be able to receive them. So, yes, things are absolutely trending in the right direction. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's something we just need to sit tight a little bit and allow U.S. Space Force, U.S. Space Command, which, let's face it, they're also quite new, immature organizations that are finding their feet so just a little bit of strategic patience to be exercised. Difficult, though, it can be sometimes. Yeah, and, and you know, you said the intent is there. <laughs> the demand is there also as well. Uh, there are things happening that are out of both governments' control, and so obviously working together is going to be so important in the future. Um, you know, I, I just it – can, can it be amplified to a level, Shay, that where everybody is happy – uh, eventually, whether or not you know there is more information sharing or not, but in other realms as well, uh, do you think that there are any way, any way that it might be pushed up to another level or to another notch with the UK or with any other governments? Well, I think we have seen marked improvement, and I think you'll continue to see that as we move forward. I don't know that anybody is ever going to be 100% happy, uh, you know. But from the standpoint of working with some of our closest, particularly our five I partners. I think you're going you're gonna to see the logjam uh, here in the months uh, ahead uh, you know, be broken in terms of some of these security classification pieces. And Eric, we should also accept that the UK is not perfect in this by any means either. <laughs> you know, we have our own difficulty sharing information with the US and other Five Eyes partners. So it's not just as if this is a US problem. That is absolutely not the case. 
Thank you for clarifying. I didn't want to get yelled at by Shay afterwards. Uh, so, um, all right. So, you know, wrapping up, any final thoughts on, you know, where this is all headed? Um, obviously, we've talked about a lot, and you probably will have to reiterate some points that you've already made in this topic. But uh, I, I am just wondering, you know, if you have any idea of uh, what you foresee in the future uh, as things move forward. Shay, we can start with you. Yeah, so I, there are a couple, you know, aspects out there above and beyond OOD, Olympic Defender. Um, you know, there's the CSPO, the Combined uh, Space Operations, which is uh, a group of seven nations right now that is looking at a whole host of things uh, in terms of planning efforts, policies, uh, and just capabilities that, that can be brought to bear. And so these forums are uh, gaining traction. They're gaining traction. They're making movement, albeit not fast enough for, for most of the nations out there. But, but it is moving forward. Um, you know, it's not a one-step-forward, two-step-backward uh, type of initiative. I mean, these things are, in fact, moving forward. And I expect, again, that within uh, the near-term years ahead, you're going to see some significant improvement on that front. Jean, we give the final floor to you. In summary, I would say that things are absolutely moving in the right direction, but that things absolutely need to move in that right direction as well. And so we look forward to working ever more closely with U.S. Space Force and U.S. Space Command. Um, you know, information sharing from all the Five Eyes partners and more broadly in a space coalition, in my view, has become non-discretionary. And the quicker we adapt our policies and our authorities to allow that to happen, the, the better we are positioned to, God forbid, wage war in the space domain. But if we do, then to be in a position to... Uh, a situation where we are exercising space superiority. You've been listening to an airing of a panel I hosted for FCN Nova's Space Force IT Day. Joining me on the panel was Colonel Shea Warakowski, Deputy Commander for the Combined Force Space Component Command with the U.S. Space Force, as well as Wing Commander Sean Langrish, who is the U.K. Embassy Space Desk Officer with the British Royal Air Force. If you missed any part of this episode, you can find it online, head to federalnewsnetwork.com and search Space Hour. Until next time, I'm Eric White.